Welcome to the Beers podcast, Violin Stories. This is a series about the violin and its siblings, the viola and cello, and those who play them. My name is Simon Morris, and in each episode, I or one of my colleagues will interview an exceptional person from the world of string playing, be they a virtuoso, a collector, philanthropist or violin maker. Today I'm speaking with my colleague Stephen Smith, co-managing director of JNA Beer Limited and violin expert. Joining us is Jonathan Mould, CBE, philanthropist and eminent violin collector, as well as being a very successful banker. We'll be talking about the value of instruments, especially to musicians, but also to those that own them. And when we talk about percentage returns, we're talking about annual percentage returns compounded, just to make that clear. So welcome, uh, Jonathan and Stephen, to the podcast. Thank you. you. I think this is the only time, actually, that I've spoken to two other people from the UK. It's been spread all over the world so far, Um, so we're quite close to home. Um, Jonathan, it's during these really difficult times, such as this, and I'm, I'm thinking back to 2008 as well, Um, that many people are wondering where they can make a safe investment. And I know that in the past you've been obviously a successful banker, but a very successful trader as well, and you've thought a lot about uh, where to invest money. So what is it that drew you to Valins as an investment, given you have many options? Well, so so if we step back, in reality, I didn't didn't, uh, purchase instruments really as investments, to be honest, I, I, it was really as a passion. And I had uh, an interest in, in firstly getting myself a very nice instrument. And then subsequently, uh, given I knew quite a lot of well-known instrumentalists, I thought maybe it would be good actually to, to try and help uh, a, number of, uh, a number of players. So it's only fortuitous that I came across this, this kind of asset class, if you like, as a as a real investment opportunity. And it was, uh, say for me, really very coincidental per se. And then having owned a series of instruments and potentially looked to sell one or, or, or even uh, without, without obviously looking to sell, I was, I was approached and asked, would I sell an instrument? And I looked at the return and I thought, and this goes back to the early 2000s, that really is quite an attractive return. So it's a kind of a, a series of fortuitous events that got me to kind of think about the investment potential of, of, of you know, fine instruments. And uh, that aspect of lending instruments to players, uh, Stephen, you started the Beers International Violin Society yeah. almost 10 years ago now. And how does that work? Well, the society idea was really set up in order to help musicians, um, artists procure instruments uh, because they are obviously um, very expensive and gaining in value yearly and becoming out of reach uh, for musicians to be able to afford, especially at the higher ends. So we wanted to set up a a society that that would entice patrons um, to, to buy instruments and loan them to players. And, you know, it's a beautiful idea because the patrons actually take a great interest in the artists themselves. At the same time, they can follow the, the careers through, but they also get a, a terrific investment. I've noticed that many patrons who really can afford to enjoy pictures on the wall 
um, or um, the most beautiful uh, rug on the floor. Um, there's nothing quite like the the mutually beneficial enjoyment of having an artist um, play your violin, and um, that that connection with a young player is something that patrons really seem to enjoy. Well, I yeah, no, no, I was just going to say that. I mean, clearly it it helps the performer's career uh, per se, but there are very few things that allow you to kind of tick the different boxes, which is, you know, to help a young career to be, be, be philanthropic in a sense, to, to get an instrument that um, you can make as, as good as you possibly can, maybe some, some small, re, you know, restorations, etc. bring it back to its finest sound, have it played, uh, you know, in a number of different concert halls, and then, you know, feel confident that actually underlying it all, you have a very solid investment. And I know that we have talked, all three of us at different times, about, you know, the investment potential of the asset class. But if you look back over decades and even into the hundred plus years, really in terms of stability of, of, of investment potential, it's, it's hard to find an asset class that has come close to it and yet can bring so much enjoyment to both performer and you know audience alike. So from that point of view, it's it, it's extraordinary, and it's been remarkably consistent over a long period of time, hasn't it? I I can't remember a time when instruments have really gone down in value. And you know, I think why a large part of that is the case is because in most assets, most financial assets, or commercial assets, or real estate assets people or a number of people buy on leverage for obvious reasons so in other words they have to borrow money to purchase you know a house or or even they will take you know leverage against a financial asset and therefore when there are significant market moves and we saw it in the financial crisis but we've seen it uh, in a number of different kind of challenging economic times then you get four sellers i think you know an asset class like this where it, it isn't based on leverage, it's based on passion, it's based on you know real value, and it's based on a an asset, which obviously you know the great violins, the 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 day back hundreds of years clearly they're not making any more of them, and yet a large part of the world is still waking up to the real potential of of music, and and that includes you know China, large parts of China per se, and. Um, I guess as, as you look forward, maybe maybe India, but certainly China, is a huge market that's largely untapped and will come on stream, but it will take some time. China is following other Asian countries. I think in Japan, this trend, you know, for sort of cultural interest in in the, in the arts and, and, and music in particular, started. I think it was maybe fifty years ago, and then you had uh, Korea and you had Taiwan and and, and other Asian countries, and, and now China in a, in a major way. We know that there are, I think it's said there are something like 30 million students and, and musicians playing violin in China, which is absolutely but, but extraordinary. How, but how many great violins are there in China in not, terms of the violins that you would both think of as historically great instruments? Not very many. Not very many. I think, you know, that it's something that within the last 10 years has, it has just started. There are a few Stradivarius, but just a small number. And I'm sure a few Guadalinis and, and probably more uh, rockers and presenters and galleons, but not many. Um, well, I have to, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting as I 
became a little bit more knowledgeable and did the research in terms of demographics, you know, a large part of clearly Stradivarius and Del Gesù, these instruments are made in, in Europe, in Italy. And for long periods of history, since they were uh, produced, they have they've remained in Europe. But, you know, over the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years, the U.S. has been yeah. a pretty important market. And so demographically, where these instruments reside and the, and the, the relative strength of the different markets, I think, has changed. And yet, as, as you say, Stephen, I mean, I think if you look at Asia, but you look at, yeah. you know, Japan, you look at Korea, um, then they've made a big impact on the market since the 70s. But but really, China's yet to come. And when China comes, that has to be a tremendous boost. Absolutely. I guess from it, for, for yeah. investment potential, I guess. Absolutely. I think the market is just waiting in China until the uh, it's it until it's easier, let's say, to get uh, money out of China. There's a tremendous interest. Um but it's a little difficult right now. But in the next few years, I expect that will change. And when money can more freely move in and out, I expect the market to be quite extraordinary. One can actually see how violins have followed the economic success of countries. But in fact, you could reverse it. And if, if you followed where the violins are being purchased, you can actually track the economic success <laughs> well, of countries. Because after the Second World War, of course, many instruments did go to the US. And in fact, they'd even be going before that. But then in, in the early 70s, it was to Japan. And we've seen Taiwan um, and Hong Kong. And um, as you say, now it's um, now China. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, you know, what's very exciting in a way is that, that the, the US market still continues. There's still a tremendous um, interest yeah. uh, in Europe, in America, in Scandinavia, and now in China and, and, and Asia. So, you know, the limited supply, um, I, I mean, not that we, we make it, e we don't make it easier for musicians, but the inevitability is that the prices are going up, and there's nothing that we can do about that. Um, so I think that's true, and, and and obviously this is not just about violins. I mean, there's violas, there's cellos. Mm, I mean, the whole string family per se. And the supply, as you say, is it is diminishing for a number of reasons. Of course, you've got the expanding market and and more and more buyers, but the supply does diminish because from time to time a violin spins off or a cello into an institution that will never sell it. It's not so much that they're stolen or lost. It's just that they are captured if you like by yeah. the well, Viotti for example at the Royal Academy of Music or Cremona the city of Cremona have acquired quite a few instruments and they will never be on the market again well, well, well that's right isn't it I mean I think we're all privileged to see a lot of the great and fine instruments but but increasingly a number have been uh, you know left to key institutions a number of the music, uh, museums um, Library of Congress I mean you look at it all the way across from the US to to Europe, to Asia, and that's and, right. Yeah. And, and, and in reality, the the number of people that are educated on on the market, and the number of musicians that I think will be looking at fine instruments, and and they don't have to be you know Stradivarius or Del Jesu, but you know any of the historically great makers, um, they are going to be in, in 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 more and more demand and and short and short supply. Absolutely. And if you look at, I mean, Taiwan, for example, it's extraordinary because they, there was a foundation called the Chimei that was formed, I think it was maybe 12, 15 years ago, and they have bought 1,200 instruments. 
of which perhaps I imagine six or seven hundred are the older Italian instruments, um, right across the board, you know, from instruments ranging from um, you know, 30, 40, 50,000, right up to the Strads and Dolgeses. And that is actually to feed the Taiwanese players alone. Yeah. So, you know, I imagine in the future we'll see nations somehow forming foundations of sorts. I expect the same will happen in China in the future as happened in, in Taiwan. And they'll, they'll want to have a certain number just to supply those for, for the musicians in China and, and across the board, you know, you're going to get the same situation. So the, the yeah. supply demand is, is getting really tight. Well, what is interesting is, 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 you know, there are clearly a number of foundations, a number of individuals with, with significant wealth. And, and yet, actually, to get a good orchestral player onto the ladder um, or a budding musician, a budding soloist or chamber player, um, you can start in a relatively small amount of money compared with what a number of people do invest in other asset classes. Mm-hmm. And yet, that can make a tremendous difference to the individual, to the institution that they, they either work or play for, etc. So there's a lot that can be done here. And there's arguably a gap. Um, where in reality, uh, people invest, clearly they invest obviously in the stock market, uh, they invest into, into commodities, but in terms of stability, and I, when I talk about stability, I mean in terms of lack of downside or historically what's been lack of downside um, of an investment. So the balance and stability of that plus real upside potential and the ability to help an orchestral player or a, a young artist with a relatively modest investment, or to help a soloist with a very significant investment in terms of one of the great instruments, um, Absolutely. Know, there's huge potential there. It, 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 it stretches right across the board, and I would encourage um, artists, musicians, to, you know, to try to obtain at least a good bow or a good instrument at a level that they can afford once they get into the profession and build up over the years, because they. They have such a great record and, and likewise patrons to come on board and help the artists that can't afford it because there is tremendous potential all across the board. It's not just the top end of the market at all. It's right through. And uh, it's, 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 and it's a wonderful scheme to become part of. And that's the nub of it, isn't it, really, is that it, these these instruments and these bows, they are really needed. I mean, it's not that they're just wanted or desired for some reason, but musicians actually need these things. And, and that's the tremendous driver in the market, I think, because even though the musicians themselves can't often afford the, to buy these things, um, they will beg, borrow, steal (laughs) to make sure somebody else buys it for them. And uh, there's nothing else in the art world that is like that. Everything else is based on want really. Well, and, and also the art world, as you know, I mean, there are some, some artists that their work has performed spectacularly well, but it's not quite the boom and bust, but you do get bubbles and you do get inflation of prices. And if you buy at the wrong time, you can you can lose a significant amount of money. Quickly, if you buy the right time, you can make a significant amount of money. You know, instrument, I guess, ownership is more measured, but you are talking about a return into double digit percentages. And we can... We can all argue what that number is with 10% or 12%. Uh, some people might say 8%. Certainly, I think, as you know, instruments bought well um, can re- can easily be north of 10% over long periods of time. And that that's pretty attractive. And so as an individual, I think you can sleep at night thinking you're getting a pretty nice return 
and when the average rate that you're getting on your bank balance is zero or negative in Europe, it's it, to yeah. me it's quite extraordinary. I think of the example of this client of ours who bought a violin, I think in the 1970s, which um, we sold some years ago now for world record price, a, a Guarneri del Gesù. Yeah. Um, I think he bought it for about £70,000 and it sold for over $16 million. But the and interesting and I, thing is... I think we probably all know who we're talking about, but we will not say right now. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. That's right. But his wife, his wife at the time, well, in the 1960s, she was buying incre- incredible... Um, Artists were, you know, Francis right. Bacon and um, you know Kandinsky's and things. Now she happened to hit it, hit it right. There were probably a thousand artists you could buy and and get it wrong. But the the important point is that you could have bought any fine old Italian violin at that right. time, and it would have done really well. Would you would it. not have. That's you, right. you could not miss. Um, the, so with the arts, you you could go spectacularly well, but it's it's really. Not an easy. Well, I think pick, I, I think both have performed extremely well, and actually, I think the two people you're talking about, if I'm on the right track here, a they're still married, <laughs> incidentally, and they're also both very smart. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> That's right. You know that I think what has to be said is you know the the wealthy people that can afford to buy these these instruments and help the players. What, but they really get a tremendous amount of pleasure. I mean, we have quite a number of wonderful patrons these days who they, they're really buying because um, they, don't, they don't need uh, the instrument to act as a great investment. It just does, naturally. But they're buying because it comes from the heart and because they have an emotional well, attachment right. and they love it and they enjoy helping people. And, and that make, that's what makes it such a wonderful project. And, and when they find out that it also has done extremely well over you know, sort of 5, 10, 15-year period, they buy more, and, and 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 we should encourage that as much as possible. Well, I think you know, success is about being good at your passion, and as I say, for me, it was a passion as opposed to an investment yeah. initially, and 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 has a real potential. Which and is the right way. Say, yeah. it's the right way around, and you can help a lot of different people. I mean, I guess the cynic would say, I mean, even if you look today, a chart of the returns. As just numbers, forget the asset, forget what it looks like or what it is. You would still take a fine instrument investment virtually against any other investment if you look over decades. Um, over a yes. short period of time, clearly single so- stocks, the, 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 there are certain st- single stocks that have outperformed. But over a reasonable period of time, just dispassionately, uh, I think somebody would uh, would happily take you know an instrument even if it was to put in a safe so there's a lot more you can do with it than that just just the fact that they are also so portable you know these instruments you know they're they're an amazing currency hedge in a sense because if you buy in one country and the, and you want to sell for instance if you buy a house and you find the market's bad and it's dipped you, with a violin you just take it to another country and sell it and that makes them you know an extraordinary yeah. commodity, if you like, as well as being a piece of art and, and, and something to create beautiful music. And I have to say that uh, some musicians do have the idea that there are all these investors buying instruments and locking them away. And the truth is, it it, it doesn't work like that. I almost everybody we sell to 
is buying with a view to that violin being played at some point. Or the viola, or the, yeah, the cello being played. I think, I think that's cello, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, and yeah, but there are instruments, as we as we all know, that are so fine that you'd you'd want them to be played selectively because they Absolutely. are you know in such a tremendous condition the varnish is so good and i think that's it's a balance isn't it well yes and know, we have to think of the next generation don't we yes who yeah you know we keep it to the next generation in that sense you know you own for a period of time and you pass on whoever the next generation yeah. is yeah. And, and it's very yeah, healthy yeah. it's very healthy that some are played you know, maybe not for 120 concerts a year. Some are played for maybe 20 concerts a year. We're, we're, we're actually very supportive of instruments in general being played, as long as they're really carefully looked after and well-maintained. Some should be played less than others, yeah. depending on purity. Of course. Um, but, but, um, but the reality is, I mean, as we know, most great instruments can be played. A number can be played absolutely. extremely regularly. Uh, you know, my instruments, not every one, but a certain number, um, you know, a large majority, I guess, if you look at it from that point of view, are lent out to musicians who play them on a very regular basis mm, in, 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 in concerts. Mm. And I have to say, when they're properly maintained, and I, you know, we, we've almost never come across a player who we, you know, have within our society that doesn't look after them extremely well, because we, you know, we have strict conditions as well. They have to bring them in two or three times a year to be checked. But to be honest, the wear and tear is absolutely minimal when they're properly looked after. And because of that, the insurance actually is remarkably low, isn't it? If you try to insure a million-pound piece of jewellery, I hate and carry it around the world. I hate to think what the insurance cost would be, but um, yeah, with so, the so, so do I. But I, I have some experience. But so do I. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, and so with with it's incredible actually because first of all, if you steal one, it's almost it is unsaleable. You can't. St- steel and sell I hope you're not talking um, from personal experience I say no, well, no. <laughs> but, but, but I would have thought the um, the person who took the the violin from one of the uh, I guess shops within in, in King's Cross was it Predamanje I don't remember which one it was yes yes, yes. yeah um, I mean in reality you know for them to to go back and think I've actually got a great Stradivarius it must be a thief's nightmare Absolute nightmare. Yes, I think you've got one... something of millions of dollars, or potentially not in that particular case, in that instrument's case, certainly a couple of million dollars. Absolutely. I mean, because I, I, I sold that particular one to, to the owner. It was uh, I mean, the only thing you've got to say to the thief, he was lucky that it wasn't a very fine Stradivarius. Yes, and you know, when, when that was stolen... <laughs> uh, worth 10 million. Yeah, when more, that was stolen, she, she rang me up and, and um, immediately, and obviously terribly upset, and I said, whatever you do, don't publicize it. Don't don't let the media know. And unfortunately, that's the first thing that happened. And because I knew that if, if the media were told, it would make recovering it much more difficult. So it did disappear for a couple of years or more. But eventually, we were getting calls all over Europe and right. people saying, could you fly out? And, and we said, just send photographs. And eventually, uh, an auction somewhere in the north of England rang and said, we've got a violin that's come in for £100. Yeah. And we think it's better than uh, yeah. £100 worth. And and so we, we found it and it came through and it was all uh, restored and put well, it's back been, on. It's, it's a bit like being your average car thief and finding you've got away with a Ferrari GTO or something, mm, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, it's your worst <laughs> nightmare. Right. The, the one famous one that, that um, did get stolen and Joshua Bell 
is playing on now, of course, is the Gibson, which was stolen backstage That's at right. Carnegie Hall. But even that one, even though it disappeared for nigh on 50 years, um, it re-emerged again. And, um, That's right. I, mean, I, think I, think a lot, really... I think a lot of instruments clearly do. I mean, f- few are lost, but, but some are. If you look at instruments that are, what, 300 years old? Yes. Then, you know, statistically speaking, some are going to get destroyed. Over a period of time, it's amazing. Having said that, how many of these instruments uh, survived the wars, isn't it? It's it, it really is amazing. And with with our new publication, you know, on Stradivari, we're we've actually yeah. we're discovering how many more are, are still in existence than than people realise. Yeah, that, I mean, the revelation I, that that work I think is 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 long overdue. So yeah. people can really look at this in some degree of detail. Yes, absolutely. It brings it home just how much these these items really matter to people i mean it's more than just uh owning um an artifact i I mean violins are really close to people's hearts if they especially if they play the instrument themselves and so it it you know when when one does get stolen people it it really um feels very bad for the for the player but there's usually the the joy when when they're reunited which is yeah. almost always the case that's right i mean people as, as you both know better than i do but people develop a real affection for a a, a great instrument whatever yeah. that is whether it's a modern instrument whether it's a you know it's a very fine classic you know italian instrument or somewhere in between people you know it's like the, whatever, whatever the other asset is, whether it's a car or a house, but people become very fond of, of their instrument. Yeah. So it's a bad time to be um, sort of thinking of the future, but but I, I, I classical music, the death of classical music has been announced, um, I think, on more than one occasion, but it's always proved to be an incredibly solid and resilient part of our culture. And with the expansion of, of interest in it, throughout the world I, th- I think there's no doubt there's um a great future for for classical music i think 65 orchestras in china okay. and growing and huge number of concert halls so how do you view jonathan how, how do you view the um the, the future going forward well i think you know i think the future is is good but it's but but it's going to take some time you know i'm actively involved in the london symphony orchestra as you both know plus a number of other performing uh, arts organizations it's very tough I mean it's tough for individuals it's tough all the way across and actually I think the London Symphony Orchestra is actually better positioned than very many because of its reserves etc so that's fortuitous and um, you know I feel good about that but it's a very tough time for a large section of classical performers whatever they you know whatever they perform as ballet or any anybody who has to interact with a live audience and this is going to go on for a period of time i think this is you know arguably the time that they need more support from patrons um and if you know the average investor or the average enthusiast understood a the potential and b the need there's a lot that can be done here but it is it's it's going to be a very tough time um, and it's going to it's it's going to go on for a series of months if it doesn't go on into the mid mid part of next year in terms of you know live concerts getting back to normality or something like normality. I heard encouragingly today. I had a conversation with a Korean friend of mine, and apparently the, the they're talking about opening them up over there. Um, so I yeah. suspect they will open their 
before they open in Europe and America, but certainly the likelihood is we're sort of six to 12 months before those large halls yeah. begin to think about opening. Yeah. I think there's obviously, you know, the number of countries that have done a, or been able to do a better job. I mean, clearly South Korea, I mean, New Zealand, I mean, there are a number of places where the infection rate and the mortality rate, I guess, are very limited comparatively. So it will take some time, but but I think it is a very tough time and I think we need to be aware of that. So a final thought, uh, Jonathan, what are you looking forward to uh, when we get our freedom back and we're out on parole? Um, well, I think it'd be quite nice if the three of us can get together and have a nice drink. <laughs> yes. and, and it'd also Agreed. be particularly nice, actually, if you and, uh, you and Steve would provide that. <laughs> yeah. I'm teasing, I'm joking, but it's like, yeah. Quite like we normally do. <laughs> of course, like you normally do, that's right. We'll get Stephen there. I'm trying to get Stephen educated on some whiskey. Yes, I'm. Ah. Which, as you know, is like a work in progress. Yeah. And he's a slow learner, I've got to tell you. Jonathan and I both have yeah. great interest in in, uh, in red wines, Bordeaux in particular, but uh, whiskey's <laughs> new to me. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I look forward to that. And um, thank you very much to Stephen Smith and Jonathan Moulds. Thanks very much. Many thanks again to Jonathan and Stephen. In the next episode, I'll talk to the violin makers, Peter Greiner and Robert Young. And unsurprisingly, we'll be talking about violin making, the varnish, the wood, the acoustics, and what makes this box of wood the magic voice for a musician. This podcast is brought to you by J&A Beer and the Beers International Violin Society. If you would like more information, please visit beers.com. <laughs>